Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. My guest is the number one New York Times bestselling author, Patricia Cornwell, and she is out with a brand new Scarpetta novel. This one is called Unnatural Death. It is available everywhere. Patricia, the term unnatural death in the forensic science world, what significance does that have? You're the first person to ask me that, so thank you for that question. Um, Well, unnatural death simply means that somebody's died, um, but it clearly is not by natural means, and usually that means there's evidence of violence. In the case of of this new book, the reason Scarpetta calls these two deaths out in the middle of the forest unnatural deaths is because she doesn't know if they're homicides, because a homicide legally means it's one human killing another, and there's a huge footprint found at this crime scene that makes you wonder if a wild animal did this specifically. It looks very curiously like a big footprint. Um, And that, of course, throws things um, into a very bizarre direction right off the bat. But I will tell you, um, so that people know, Bigfoot is not what did this, and I don't ever pretend that that's the case, but Bigfoot adds a very interesting element to this. And I also show people a little bit more about why Bigfoot is talked about to begin with. What's he all about? Well, you know, I've... Living in the Midwest, we don't really have, I mean, we have a lot of wilderness and, and agriculture areas, but can you describe this area where the the, the 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 death is actually set? Because it was kind of hard for me to picture it just in relation to someplace where I live. Because I think of Virginia, I think of politics and things like that in these, all these urban areas. But what's the wilderness look like there? Well, you know, you, uh, it's funny you would say that because um, – I'm a helicopter pilot, and most of my flying has been in Virginia because that's where I learned, and I've lived there for 20 years. And it's shocking when you fly around Virginia, you realize how much forest land there is. Virginia is a a very heavily wooded state. Um, And when you go in the western part of the state, when you get into the Blue Ridge and the Appalachian Mountains, uh, uh, there can be miles and miles and miles of forest land where... Uh, there's there's no sign of, of human habitation at all. On this particular unnatural death, no, we know as a reader it has significance, and the media in the book knows there's significance because Secret Service is involved. And I always think it's interesting when you have the different departments going to war with each other, or maybe territorial wars at least, as far as investigating. So can you explain how the, these departments work together to try to solve things and where the egos get in the way? Well, in a perfect world, the local jurisdiction, which would be your city police, they're supposed to, you know, if you have a federal crime, then it's usually going to start in a, in a local jurisdiction, let's say, like, you know, uh, Sioux City and, and, or Chicago or anywhere, then they're going to have to collaborate with whatever federal agency takes over the jurisdiction of that case if it's a federal case. And that's either going to be the FBI in most cases, or it could be the Secret Service. The reason it's the Secret Service and, and these two deaths in my book is that the victims were, um, were being heavily investigated for massive um, financial fraud committed over the Internet. And a lot of people don't know that the Secret Service was originally started by Abraham Lincoln in 1865 to war against counterfeiting. It was to regulate the financial industry and protect it um, because about a third of currency in, in America back then was, was counterfeit. And it was a national 
a threat to national security. So that's why the Secret Service was 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 founded. And um, you know, in earlier years, you mostly heard about them dealing with counterfeiting, and of course, but now it's the cyber crimes. The Secret Service, when they get involved in a crime like this, are and I know you've done your research over the years for these local jurisdictions. Is it is it harder to get information about how Secret Service investigates a crime than it is from, say, a local jurisdiction? Um, I think it, it, yes, I think it is. Uh, it took me, it, it's taken me a long time to build up trust with some of these agencies. They don't just let you in. And I've been doing research with the Secret Service for over five years now, and the reason I got to do that is I was invited to do a forensic um, talk at the CIA and while I was at the CIA, I met a cyber investigator from the Secret Service, and I said, do you think you guys would ever give me a tour? Um, and so I started, I, you know, became, I, I built my way up into having trust. Now, I don't get to see anything that, that journalists really wouldn't get to see. But, but it, it, gives, it gave me an opportunity to, to get to know some of these people and to ask them questions about, Especially like why is something your your case versus somebody else's, um, and it it's amazing what all they do. People think they just protect the president, but that's the most visible part of it. But it's not it's not even the biggest part of it. When we think of the different federal agencies, the Secret Service investigating cybercrime and formerly counterfeit. I mean, I don't know if that's a huge deal anymore. But wh- uh, where does it fall in with the FBI, Homeland Security, and all that? Do they share territories, or do they all their their own distinct jobs? Well, they share territories, they share jurisdiction in certain types of cases, and they're supposed to work harmoniously with each other. And But let me just back up and say one thing about counterfeiting. Oh, yes, it is a big thing still today. Um, there, there is a huge amount of counterfeiting, particularly with $100 bills, especially in places like North Korea, where they print these things and then they spend them um, in other countries. And so it is, but the cyber fraud is, is even a bigger thing. But yes, there are jurisdictional uh, competitions between these organizations, these agencies, um, and quite honestly, it, it, it's a shame that it has to be that way, but, but you know, people are competitive with each other, and, and a lot of times these agencies don't get along. In this book, I found little nuggets, and I always enjoy how you describe the forensics labs. And one of the things that stuck with me throughout the entire book, because I was a baseball player as a kid, is the the presence of an aluminum baseball bat in a forensics lab. Can you explain the significance of that? Because I thought that was so interesting. Well, where you would, the baseball bat is really more associated with the actual um, medical examiner's office, and the reason that is there and the reason I know about such a thing is that when I worked in the medical examiner's office below ground, below the actual morgue was the anatomical division where bodies were stored that were donated to science and so they would be uh, you know, shipped over to the medical colleges, the medical schools. Well when those, when those bodies were, were finished, when they were done with by the students they would come back to us and they would be um, cremated. We had a crematorium down there and those cremains, the ashes needed to go in these cheap little boxes. Um, and if they didn't fit, if a chunk of bone was too big, the person working down there used that aluminum baseball bat to crush it so it would fit in the little box. And I know that sounds indelicate and, and rather awful, but that was you do what you got to do to get the job done. So um, that's why that baseball bat's hanging around. And 
there's got to be a certain amount of respect for these bodies that are in these labs, especially the ones that have been donated to science, not in the labs, in the medical examiner's office. But I, I think we sometimes associate these these lab or these uh, offices with a very macabre sense. But is there a certain amount of respect that goes into these having these bodies around? There is respect, but it's not. It's, it, it's not a, bam, a bombastic kind of respect. I mean, it's not a funeral home. I mean, this is more like a body shop, if you want me to be honest. I mean, literally, like, there's a lot of noise and banging around and electric saws starting up, and you're, you're disassembling a human being to, to figure out what happened to them. Now, the people I've worked around, they will not tolerate um, in, inappropriate jokes, or you would never do anything inappropriate with a body. There's that kind of respect. For example, um, no medical examiner I've ever worked with would hand me a scalpel as an English major in college and say, hey, do you want to see what it's like to do a Y incision? Oh, no, 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 no. In that regard, there is what I call professionalism. But, but it's, it's, not, it's, an, it's a huge indignity to have an autopsy. I mean, I, I wouldn't want one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you spent time working in... in in uh, forensics and it's it seems to me that it it takes a certain mindset i've heard police describe dead bodies as they're merely evidence and does that take a certain mind shift for you to go from the outside world to just looking at a body as evidence i know that the body literally is evidence for the medical examiner the body is the biggest piece of evidence and legally that's what it is but um the, the really good people I know know who, who work in the profession, you know, and I was, I was around this every day for six years, and I've still been around it in some form or fashion um, most of my, half my life now. Um, most of these people, they do have empathy. Um, you can't help but, if you have no feelings about this at all, then I really don't think you should be in this profession because even though the victim or the person on your table is dead, they leave behind living people, and, and what we find out from the dead is really for the living. It's not, you can't help the dead anymore, but justice is for the rest of us. I'm chatting with Patricia Cornwell about her brand new novel, Unnatural Death. It's the latest Scarpetta novel, and Patricia is a number one New York Times bestselling author. Patricia, there's a character in the book that we've seen before, Henry Adams, funeral director, and I'm sure that there are funeral directors similarly situated with respect to people who've done funerals and such for dignitaries. But what is the relationship like with a funeral director and a medical examiner and somebody that works in, in these places? And how do they toe that line of not referring business, but you got to have somebody you can trust in that business? Well, you make a good point, and there are good funeral home relationships, and there are not so good funeral home relationships. Um, in an ideal relationship... Uh, the medical examiner works in harmony with the funeral home, and in fact, in some ways, the medical examiner will have the funeral home in mind as they're getting, as they're finishing the autopsy. They might tie off the femoral artery or something, uh, making it easier for the, the funeral home to find certain things when they're going to be doing the embalming and whatever. They, but it, it's a, it's a purely professional. There is no financial gain, there are no favors, that's what it should be like. But then there are funeral homes and medical examiners. I mean, um, you know, uh, unfortunately there are those that might uh, refer business and, and take advantage uh, because people are in a very vulnerable situation when someone's died. So, uh, 
so you know the medical examiner will usually have their, their funeral homes that, that they that are their favorites uh, because the uh, the people are they that they you know they can really collaborate with. <clears throat> well, I never thought about this before until I read this book. But it, depending on who the dead person is, there's a certain amount of danger that funeral homes are in when you're working among people who've got certain international connections. And does that come up a lot, or is that purely fictionalized? No, it's not fictionalized. Um, these things do happen. If you have somebody who's a member of the intelligence community, a spy, in other words, um, and that person gets killed in a car accident, well, the medical examiner off the top of, I mean, right off the bat, is not necessarily isn't going to know that this person is of great interest to the federal government, the Department of Defense, the CIA, whoever it might be. And in those cases, there will be special arrangements that are made, and that would include the funeral home. Um, they, there will be interest in how this person's body is handled and if there might be anything associated with that person that the intelligence community needs to recover for that body is dealt with. Another character we see in the book is... Uh, Scarpetta's niece, Lucy, and she's with the Secret Service. She's a pilot. I, I can see where the inspiration for that came from. But what's her relationship like with her niece? Because it seems like a lot of law enforcement, it's a family business. Well, the relationship Lucy has with Scarpetta is different now than it ever was before because when when the Secret Service takes over a case, as, as happens in a natural death, if Lucy's involved with that, in some ways um, Scarpetta will answer to Lucy. Because if the Secret Service is heading the investigation, there are some things that the medical examiner will not have a choice about. It's a, you know, they will have to answer to some, in some form or fashion to the law enforcement entity that's driving the investigation. Now, anything relating to the body will be, for sure, Scarpetta's domain. But some other evidence, it may be a different story. I know you had a creepy experience when you were researching in the woods. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, this happened after I, after I was finished with the research for Unnatural Death, and I'd written the first draft, and it was being looked at by my editors and so forth, and I started doing some new research that took me to uh, the western part of Virginia um, into an area where there are caves, these old caverns, and some of them were explored way back before the Civil War, and it was very, very rural. Um, where we were, I was with two other people, and we were walking up this narrow road to an old building where when you'd go inside, there was a cavern. And, and so we headed up that way, and as we were walking up this road with a, a steep drop-off on one side and a mountain side on the other, just all uh, dense woods, we heard something crashing in the woods, kind of following us up to the top of the hill. It was, sounded like a medium-sized animal. And... So we went in and did our thing and came back out about a half hour later. And as we're coming back down that same road, the same noise, something's crashing along next to us in the woods. We can't see it, a decent-sized animal. And then all of a sudden, a branch sailed out of nowhere and landed on, on this, the little road right in front of us. And there were no trees directly overhead. It's like something threw something at us. And so... It was very weird. We, we all of us had our hair standing on end, and I sort of jokingly said, "Well, I don't know. You know, we start looking into Bigfoot. Maybe he's looking back, because um, you know, it, an, a regular animal can't throw something at you. You sort of need hands to do that." 
Scarpetta is getting a, uh, a presence in a new medium now in television. Uh, what's your involvement with that? Oh, well, that's going to be so exciting. Yes, Scarpetta, Amazon TV. Um, I'm, well, you know, obviously it's based on my books, and I'm, I'm an executive producer on it, and so I'll be helpful in any way they need. Um, as, as people may know, Nicole Kidman is going to play Scarpetta, and Jamie Lee Curtis is going to uh, play Scarpetta's sister, Dorothy. And I don't know what, what the rest of the casting is going to be yet. Is that a, a risky endeavor for a writer? I mean, Scarpetta is your child. That's your, that's your creation. Turning it over to a different set of people, is that a, a, I assume that's not a decision you make lightly. Well, you know, it's not a decision you make lightly, but I'm really excited about it, especially now because uh, there have been efforts to have this happen for over, well, literally for 33 years now, and nothing has ever worked, much to my disappointment. Um, and I will say that in my earlier years, I was felt much more protective about um, how this would be done, you know, how it would be adapted. And, and I don't feel quite that same way anymore. I feel a lot more relaxed about it. Um, in fact, I'm interested to see what other creatives bring to the mix. I, I think it, and I know I'm in the hands of really good people. Um, Liz Sarnoff is the showrunner, and she's a fantastic writer. So, you know, I'm, I'm confident it's going to be fun. Well, it seems like Amazon touch. I mean, they did the same thing with the uh, Harry Bosch character, with uh, Michael Conley's character, and they've just done wonders for it. <coughs> but the protectiveness of Scarpetta, why do you think that that went away with age? You know, I think that I, I, for some reason I don't take myself as seriously as I did when I was younger. In the, the first 10 years or so of my career, I've, probably because I was still so close to the morgue. Um, you know, when you see what you that every single day, it, it was it, it kept me pretty tightly wrapped about what I thought was okay and not okay. I didn't have much of a sense of humor about it, and that's just and I don't feel that way now. I'm a little bit more flexible. Um, I see the humor. I mean, even in unnatural death, there are areas where it's tongue in cheek, and I'm being a, I'm, I'm I'm having a, a having a little bit of fun with you because um, I do want people to have fun. So. I hope that, like a, a river stone, I get worn a little smoother with, with time. Do you leave anything in the tank when you finish one of these Scarpetta novels, or have you emptied out every bit that you can into each book? No, I'm, I'm pretty much running on empty, and, and I'm done. And, 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 it, and, and, that, and the first thing I start doing to get, to get my creative tank filled again is I start thinking about a research trip, going somewhere, exploring something, that will fill me full of wonder. Well, I know you've been entertaining us for over three decades now with uh, Scarpetta and your other novels you've written, and especially if you haven't checked out her Jack the Ripper stuff, it's just fantastic. She solved the crime that <laughs> that we that uh, has puzzled so many for years. But this book is called Unnatural Death. It's the latest Scarpetta novel by Patricia Cornwell, the number one New York Times bestselling author. Patricia, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and I thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. It's great. I appreciate it. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. Mm-hmm.